Hi hi, sports movie aficionados, and thanks for getting after it and listening to episode number 105 of Scoring at the Movies. We jam about flicks that have balls and sticks and pucks and gloves and race cars and running shoes, and we spoil them. So don't get mad if we ruin the express for you today. I'm the defiant halfback who gets ominous nosebleeds years before my deadly disease will truly take hold, Ryan Ellis. And here's a thoroughbred you don't lock in the barn, the man who wears an orange helmet no matter what team he plays for, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. In homage to this movie, I decided to run over here along the train tracks, but you're familiar with how quickly I run, so it took me a very long time. <laughs> they don't call me the Express for nothing. <laughs> they don't call him the Express in this movie, do they, ever? They do. They refer to the Elmira Express, I think, in one of like, oh. the voiceover clips, but it's maybe once. Oh, there it is, then. It's, I must have missed that, then. It's not really heavily laid on, which I thought was a little bit weird, given that it's the movie title mm-hmm. and everything. The Ernie Davis story is the subtitle depending where you look, although the credits at the end did say just The Express, and yeah. that's what the IMDb entry is. Isn't that how it shows up on Netflix, which is, I think, how we both yes, watch it? Yes, also that, yeah. Just The Express. And in fact, it took me like 15 minutes of watching this movie before it clicked in that this movie was not about Ernie Banks, but it was about <laughs> Ernie Davis. I was very confused at first when he was doing all that running at the beginning. I'm like, wasn't Ernie Banks a first baseman or something? Why does he need to do all... And a shortstop. Ah, oh, here we go. Now <laughs> I get... They do say Ernie Davis plays all sports, so... In that sense, you might have been right. Well, we don't usually do this anymore because you haven't been drinking beer for a while at these recordings, but you do have beverages. Zevia or Zevia? How do you pronounce that again? That is my Stavia sweetened soda. I think it's Zevia. I don't know. My zero-calorie soda and my decaffeinated green tea, Ryan. He's still healthy. I go hard. We do have our first game tomorrow, so he's in training. I'm not. I only have a few today. i got to work tonight. So, And the sirens are going off. They're coming after the express. He didn't do it, I swear, officer. He's a good man. He mm. heard that we crossed north of 12th line or north of the mm. train tracks or whatever. They're coming for us now. You can't have those bottles, kid. It's funny. This movie's PG. There's no bad language except for the racism. And it's mostly in the beginning. Yeah. We do hear that word plenty of times early on. Although I think we've said this before. Here's another biographical movie about race. 42 was. Glory Road was. Plenty of others we've covered have been. And if you don't use that word, it's disingenuous. None of us want to hear it anymore. But I think you agree with me. And I actually convinced Bev about that. In regular life, we don't need to be saying it, but if we have portrayals of important racial figures like this guy is, yes. then you can't not say the word. For a guy like Ernie Davis, who I say this as somebody that was confused about who this movie was a portrayal of before having watched <laughs> it, so I clearly don't know a lot about Ernie Davis going into this. But as I understand it, aside from his clear talent, athleticism, and the tragedy of his early passing, he was supposed to be a very socially aware man in the late 50s, early 60s, that's obviously a very important thing in American civil rights history. So you can't have a movie about him and not be honest about what it would have been like for a young black man or a young black kid in the 40s and 50s in America. They would have faced that. And if you don't portray that honestly, then some of the impact you're hoping for with your later portrayals of Ernie Davis, it's going to be lost, Mm -hmm. right? We were also in agreement on 
people saying things like, I don't even know if I want to say it because I don't know what I'm going to say, but you know, rather, the word. Than, yeah, rather than say the word itself, they say the blank word and everybody knows what you're referring to. The fact that you're not uttering the word, I don't think makes it any less offensive. Not that that's what they would have done in the characters in this movie, but in talking about it when people do that or in modern day conversations when they do that. I like, agree with this. You don't have to say the word, but you shouldn't even really be referencing it either. You can make other references to racist language without actually making reference to specific Oh, words. I don't agree with that part then. In this situation, where we're talking about a guy who heard this from people, especially the yes. things when he's a kid, more so that when he's getting the bottles on the train tracks. And then, yes, the opposing player in, I think, the Longhorns game, because we see that game very briefly at the beginning, and oh, then, of course, more that. so yes. the middle of the game, where he says it to not even Ernie, but the buddy, Omar Benson Miller, JB. I think we hear it said to the Syracuse players, Ernie, JB, and there's a third player of color on the team, by the Longhorns, certainly, but also by... Dallas fans, Texas Longhorns okay. fans anyway, so people in Dallas, there's a lot of very hard language thrown around, at least hard for a 2022 viewer to wrap your head around. Maybe I didn't notice that so much once the movie was playing out for an hour there. It's this, I was awake for this one and paying attention, unlike Rush at the end, like I admitted. I missed but, a lot of that because I was very distracted. But You know the scene the where they arrive at the stadium and they're getting their pregame speech in the tunnel, and then the coach says... Here come the bottles. Or is that West Virginia? West Virginia. At Texas, too, there's bottles thrown. But at a certain point, Dennis Quaid's character says, it will be safer out on the field. And they run out. And that's when everyone's just screaming the racial epithets and throwing bottles and stuff. So I assume accurate to the time frame. Oh, probably. And Jim Brown was, I guess, a racial figure, a racial leader. That movie that was out a couple years ago, One Night in Miami, he was one of the guys depicted. So was Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and, of course, Malcolm X. This is probably maybe tipping my hand a little bit about how I felt about this movie overall. But that part of the movie where Jim Brown shows up made me more interested to just see a similar type of movie as The Express, but about Jim Brown. Oh, there really should be, definitely. One of the most famous players in the history of the NFL, much like Barry Sanders, cut his career short when he was on top for his own reasons, and maybe he kept his brain and his sanity because of that. He had one of the great careers in only a short period of time. And he and Barry Sanders both would maybe have all kinds of records that they don't have if they hadn't quit so early. But how can you judge them? They went out on their own terms. Like you said, he's such an interesting guy because of his college career. And they've referenced that in this case. He did not win the Heisman for racist reasons. Mm -hmm. Had a spectacular Hall of Fame career. Arguably the best player, if not the best running back of all time in the NFL. Certainly at that point he was, and maybe even still. I'd say maybe even still. Barry Sanders, you could probably make an argument for. I was curious because of this, just reading about Ernie Davis, reading about his contemporaries, subsequent running backs in the NFL, looking at the per season, per game stats that these guys were putting up. And Jim Brown, I think it's hard to argue against him once you look at that. But even so, why he quit, I always just understood he had done what he wanted to do in football and he wanted to act. And so he, he got into acting. We've covered him, acting. I think, three times. Well, his character here, he's not the actor himself, but he was in Any Given Sunday. I believe he's Sorry. Montezuma Monroe. He is Montezuma and I Sorry. think he's also a private detective or a cop or something in, not the Hurricane, the other Denzel movie. Well, we've covered three of those. What is it again? He Got Game. I think he's was one he of the two cops game? that is assigned to Denzel Maybe. when he's let out of jail. So yeah. he's acted in a couple of movies we've covered, but portrayed here by. Darren Hewitt Henson. He wasn't done that much. Good-looking guy. Does a pretty good job. He's in Stomp the Yard. I thought maybe that was some kind of dancing movie. but I, I thought so, too. Or maybe it is dancing, but it's not a sports movie. It's like street dance or something. I guess stuff, it could right? be because they're that. He's done a lot of TV, too. But I thought maybe I'd seen him in something else before, and I guess I haven't. Just like Omar Benson Miller, who does play the big dude, JB, Jack Buckley. 
I don't see anything sports-wise in his resume other than oh, Ballers on I was TV. Say, he's got a long run in Ballers, mm. which is a reasonable show. He was in Eight Mile, and one of the other guys in this movie, the one who's dancing at the juke joint, the white guys wearing the shades. I forget his name now, but he's dancing at the juke joint. Yeah. They were both in Eight Mile. They were Rabbit's friends, I believe. I remember in that. that guy. Yeah. It's actually the women who are in sports movies more than some of the guys. Although we'll get to the cast all the way through in a little bit here. Some people in this movie have been in many sports movies we've covered before, and some we might cover in the future. Okay, so a kid from Elmira was released by Universal Pictures on October 10th, 2008. It flopped. It did win the ESPY, though, for Best Sports Movie over Sugar, a baseball movie we got to cover one of these days. You probably haven't seen that, have you? Never even heard Really of good. Sugar? Yeah, it's called Sugar. From 08? 08, yep. And The Wrestler, which we, of course, covered in one of the great movies we have covered. I struggle to understand how The Wrestler was beaten by this movie for an ESPY. And they're the only three nominees. I assume there'd be more, but that was it, those three. And of the three movies, I like The Wrestler the best, Sugar the second best, and this third best. I think I like this more than you. The critical numbers are fine. 62% of critics, so it is a fresh tomato on Rotten Tomatoes. 6.2 out of 10 was the average. 121 reviews are on the site. And 75% of audiences, even though nobody went to see it when it was out in the theaters in 2008, which was true of Rush two weeks ago, too, a better movie that should have been attended. Yeah. This was 146th at the 08 box office. Semi-Pro was 83rd. We've covered that. I thought maybe that was nominated for an SB at one point. I thought I said that, but I didn't see that listed. Maybe it was nominated for a different SB. Best sports movie is what? The Express one. Leatherheads was 95th. We covered that earlier this year. And The Wrestler was 105th. And I'll do the nutshell right now. So Mm -hmm. The Express in a nutshell. The Ernie Davis story in a nutshell. Large crowd applauds as non-roster player storms the field prior to Ohio football contest. And apparently in reality, he was not in full uniform. He came out in a suit and tie and all that and a hat and did the same kind of thing they show in this film, which I guess was also Wrigley Field where they shot that scene in this movie, even though it's supposed to be Cleveland Stadium before the Brown Steelers game. But at the end, he's not on the roster, and that's why he wasn't in full uniform. Who was the coach again? That would make sense, actually. Who was that coach? Was it Art Modell owned the team? Was it Brown that was not going to let Davis wear the uniform? So he got drafted. And never did play for the Browns. And had he been in that backfield with Jim Brown, wow, would they ever throw the ball? What would be the point? If you're a sports fan, and specifically a fan of Cleveland, leaving aside the human element of the tragedy of his leukemia taking him so young, but yeah, that would have been presumably, if they had any kind of team around the two guys, a team for the ages, assuming that the Ernie Davis talent that he demonstrated in college translated right. to the NFL. It doesn't always, that's true. It doesn't always, but... How many Heisman Trophy winners have gone on to be superstars in the NFL? I don't think it's that many. Not as many as you'd think. Mm-hmm. It's surprising, especially when you're talking about quarterbacks. It seems like the quarterback Heisman winners are more hit and miss than other positions. Wasn't Ryan Leaf the Heisman Trophy he winner was. and also number one in the draft yeah. and then flamed out completely? Didn't flame out completely. Like, he had a okay career. It's just when you're number one overall Heisman winner, there's a lot more expected of you. Right. But in describing that final ish scene of the movie i think my number one problem with this movie is i really did not like the way it was constructed i didn't like the flow of it there's a real lack of i don't know if tension's the right word or pacing i know there's the racial tension that just pervades the movie for sure no but tension in the sense of editing pace that kind of thing exactly you're right the movie did feel slow which is ironic for a movie called the express right Mm -hmm. it's very slow (laughs) When the movie wrapped up and I saw, okay, well, here's the entirety of the story. And I appreciate that you're locked into the broad strokes of Ernie Davis's life. Because he's a real person. Because he's a real person. And we've talked about 
the tropes and the same old, same old nature of some of these movies. You're kind of stuck with that to a certain degree. Even when it's well done, sometimes it feels like I've seen this basic story before, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, because we have, right? We as an audience like to see talented people either succeed or fail because if they succeed, it's like a feel-good story. If they fail, it's a tragedy. And when I say fail in this case, of course, it's because of his health. But what I think might have made it a more interesting movie to me is if the movie opens not with young Ernie Davis, but with that scene on the field with the Cleveland Browns waving his hands and maybe some sort of screen text to say Ernie Davis would never play a game for the Cleveland Browns. So you start that way. You start that way, and then you go into his story or something like that. When you start that way, you're like, oh, man, something terrible happened. A mystery element. Oh, you don't say why he never played at that point. Not necessarily. I've just been thinking about it over the last day or two since I watched the movie. If you just broke it down into its constituent elements, it feels like a movie that should be a successful repetition of that same trope we've talked about over and over. But it felt slow. It felt like it lacked tension. I just feel like if they reordered, re-edited, and repaced all of the existing elements that are there... For me as a viewer, it might have made it a more enjoyable and less of a slog to go through, it felt like. Okay. I didn't think of all those details when I watched it, but I already agree with you that it wasn't the quickest paced movie of all time. It was a little over two hours. It felt a little longer than that. Yeah, it did. Gary Fletter, I think is how you say his name. He mostly did thrillers, or mostly has done thrillers, like Kiss the Girls with Morgan Freeman. That's the director. Director. And Runaway Jury. That's the movie with Hackman and Hoffman finally acting together, and Mm -hmm. John Cusack's in that too. And he's done a lot of TV, but no other sports movies on his resume. Charles Levitt wrote it. He's written a lot of duds. Warcraft, that did not make any money. Maybe overseas it did, but otherwise people did not see it in this part of the world. And I mentioned this two weeks ago. Ron Howard directed Chris Hemsworth in in The Heart of the Sea, and Levitt wrote that too. And he based it on the 1983 novel by Robert Gallagher. So this book was not made into a movie for, what is that, 25 or bad math again? 25 years? Okay. And I'm going to out myself as the true computer geek that I am. But one of my biggest disappointments in recent years was Warcraft. I wanted that movie to be good so badly. (laughs) And what breaks my heart about Warcraft, and it's funny that you say that now. Maybe this is an unfair comparison, but comparing what I thought were maybe some of the weaker elements of the Express or my disappointments with the Express are kind of how I felt about Warcraft, too. The elements for success are all here, but interspersed amongst those, there are all these decisions or screenwriting decisions, directorial decisions, and I know it was a different director for Warcraft. I think it was Duncan Jones or something. Sounds right. All the decisions there, I don't get them. I don't understand why anybody would think this was the optimal choice here, but I can see the good stuff. It's almost sadder to me when I'm watching a movie like that, and I can see how this would be so good, but you went this other direction. With material you already have, too. You didn't have to reshoot anything necessarily. Just redo it. Well, the editors were, I've never seen this name before, Padraic McKinley, P-A-D-R-A-I-C. But this name I do know, William Steinkamp. I believe he's been editing for a long time. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, it could be Flatter. It could be the studio, and these guys did the best they could with the material they had. You can't blame them, but they are the editors, and if that's what you're saying is the problem... Steinkamp, what do you work on again? Nominated for three Oscars. Out of Africa, Tootsie, Scent of a Woman, and Kiss the Girls are his top four known fours on IMDb. Pretty good titles mostly. Well, maybe Scent of a Woman is a little long too. But anyway, <laughs> so maybe it is on Flutter, the studio, or someone else. Simply because of your references to the other movies the guy's written now, the screenwriter for this, maybe there's something in the writing too that should have been rejigged a little bit. I thought all the performances, by and large, were good to pretty darn good. across. Generally the a black cast. Yeah, I had no bones to pick with any of the performances and like i said that can see the good stuff in the script there but the pacing and then some of the camera work i didn't like all that much because it felt like it detracted from some of what the movie was trying to do in terms of dramatic tension and things like that 
the bus ride to Dallas, mm-hmm. there was a ton of black and white shaky cam stuff and faux 1960s burning film kind of effects. Don't show me that. Just focus on Ernie and focus on, I've forgotten the big dude's name. Jack Buckley? Yeah, JB. JB. Focus on what they are seeing driving through the South. It flashes up. Whites only. We don't want segregated schools. What's more interesting to me is spending time... Taking that in better. Taking their reactions oh, to that in, or taking that material in. But it was like a lot of quick cuts, a lot of moving around. And I felt a similar way about Dennis Quaid's big locker room speech. That's what you want from a sports movie, right? As part of the climactic run-up, you always got to have that big, rousing speech. Do you think that this man did that for real? I don't necessarily think this man did it, but I think that (laughs) if you're going to put it in a movie, give it the gravitas it deserves. They're trying to cut to the coach giving the speech and then cut to watching Ernie's reaction. Coach Ernie, Coach Ernie. The back and forth, back and forth, back and forth killed the moment. I would have just preferred a longer shot on Dennis Quaid. Let him give the speech, then give me like a good long moment with Ernie. And to with take JB it in, what he really it thinks. In. It's going to be hard to top Pacino's speech at the beginning of any given Sunday's final game, not the halftime speech, because we didn't love the movie, but that speech is one of those I've watched on YouTube many times. It's a great speech. Cinematographer, by the way, I looked it up when you were talking, Creed 2, he shot that, <laughs> and also he shot some episodes of Game of Thrones. So it's people behind the scenes who certainly can make a movie. I keep on scrolling through all these long names, by the way, because there's so many people, a lot of them are uncredited people, but the cast is so enormous when you go down the technical people. On the IMDb, you got to keep on scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. So as for the cast, Rob Brown, we haven't said his name, but he is the lead. He is Ernie. He was in Coach Carter. He won the many players in that. Oh, yeah. The Sam Jackson Good Coach movie. Also played a basketball player in Finding Forrester. So he's been in three sports movies. Well, it's not a sports movie, but he's played three athletes. And he hasn't made that many films. But Rob Brown, rock solid actor. By the way, the score factor very briefly here. The girl who plays his girlfriend, Sarah, Nicole Bahari, she was Rachel in 42. So Jackie Robinson's mentioned this plenty of times, and the guy who played Jackie Robinson is in this, Jagwood Bozeman. Well, she played his wife, and now she's playing the girlfriend of Rob Brown. Those two have pretty good chemistry, and the only thing that's remotely close to scorable is that one scene where he ends up bleeding on her, because they are (laughs) canoodling. But this movie's PG. It doesn't get remotely sexual or anything like that. Dennis Quaid is co-star. We talked about Any Given Sunday. He, of course, is the quarterback in that movie. And we'll be covering The Rookie in July, around the all-star break of baseball, because it is on Disney Plus and it's 20 years old this year. I don't know if he's great in this film. I did like the moments towards the end when he goes to the Heisman presentation mm-hmm. and doesn't cry, but he definitely is fighting it back. And then when he shows up, that probably isn't real either, but a nice moment when he shows up in Cleveland the night that Ernie's honored and says, I'm with you, whatever it was. But during the Heisman Trophy speech, Ernie says he's not only a good coach, but a good man. Even though through the whole film, I wouldn't really say they battled exactly, but I think he's implying... I mean, he's not really implying. He's almost saying it straight out. They're actually saying, literally, you're a racist and part of the problem. But that whole thing about West Virginia, you run into the end zone with a touchdown, they're going to kill you. So I'm not going to let that happen. But then Ernie accuses him of being part of the problem. I can see Ben Schwartzwalder's viewpoint on that, but I can certainly see Ernie's, though, too. I liked Dennis Quaid quite a bit in this. And one of the things that did work for me in this movie was the evolution of the coach. I don't know how many of these cliche moments at the end are really true to life, but I'm going to give the movie enough credit to say, okay, maybe the coach existed. I'm sure he existed, but maybe he existed. Hall of Fame coach, he existed, all right. I'm talking his attitudes, I guess. Oh, okay. And maybe they evolved, and this was the movie's way of making sure you get it. But the beginning, the conversations between the coach and Jim Brown, it's not like they were necessarily combative, but that really sets the stage to say, okay, well, listen, by 1950s standards, this coach is maybe 
towards, sadly enough, the progressive end of the spectrum. I'd say you're right. But there's a self-serving element to that. He's willing to look past whatever prejudices he was raised with for the benefit of his team and his school and things like that. But he's not quite willing to go so far as to necessarily develop a close personal bond with the players of color on his team because what you hear from Jim Brown in that moment is he helped Jim Brown become a great player, but you hear Jim Brown's response that, no, I did everything. You had no interest in me off the field until this point. Now you want me to help you? That's probably true about a lot of coaches, no matter what the color of the skin of the player is. No, absolutely. But when you're talking about a movie that wants you to believe that by the end of it, this guy has evolved to the point where he's taking a personal interest in Ernie. He's proud of Ernie as a person, not just a player. And it's returned as well. And it's returned. You need to hammer home that first point to say this is not a super progressive guy he's just a little bit self-interested and stuff like that and it's reinforced later once ernie joins syracuse and he gets the colored player speech where it's Mm -hmm. there are some lines that shall not be crossed don't date white girls yeah don't you date white girls i'm sure that was true and if ernie had tried to date a white woman even in syracuse in the 50s would he have been lynched or something? Maybe. Who the hell knows? I don't think Ben's saying, I think this is a terrible idea. I think Ben's saying that other people do. Yeah. But Ben, in saying that, does enforce He's, that. Except exactly. when people in the group we're talking about, this is black people, could be women, could be gays, whatever the group is that says, if you don't stand up for me, you're part of the problem. But we also have to talk truth, though, too. Is Ben not just being truthful and saying, you're going to deal with this. I may not be part of the problem. I'm not going to be part of the solution either. I know that now we hear this all the time. If you're not helping, then you're part of the problem. Right. But some people can't really help. This guy maybe has more power than a lot of people, this coach. But I don't think he's really close to any player. It doesn't look like he's really close to the white players either. And he's that stereotypical, grab you by the face mask, insult you type coach. Quick aside, by the way, I mentioned Glory Road a few minutes ago, another racial movie we've covered. Very good comparison for this, actually, yeah. Key point, though, because I happened to see Josh Lucas on Rich Eisen's show recently. Either it was an old episode or he was on recently, but I saw it on YouTube. And he talked about how the coach he plays, Don something, I forget his name now, Hall of Fame basketball coach who stands up for his black players and only plays the black players in that championship game against Kentucky, Lucas said that the actual coach was not Mr. Nice Guy, but it's a Disney movie, so there's no swearing and there's no insulting. So God knows that maybe behind the scenes, training and practice and workouts and even in games, whatever that coach's name that Josh Lucas was playing was somebody who was saying all kinds of terrible things because maybe everybody did. They maybe were on the side of the little guy who's been stomped before. They're not the Adolf Rupp person, but they're not also necessarily completely getting it either. But movies want to portray, especially Disney movies, that they were. It's a good comparison between those two guys. And I think it's one of the more interesting elements of this movie, The Express versus something like Glory Road, that the movie, I think, is really trying to emphasize that... I keep wanting to say Schwarzenegger, so... Schwarzwalder. Schwarzwalder. Not Schwarzwelder. Schwarzwalder. Just call him Ben. Yeah, Ben. Okay. Or Quaid, because, of course, he plays Ben. So Coach Ben is not a great guy and he's not super woke by 1950 standards or anything like that and i do agree with you i don't think it's always you have to be actively pursuing some sort of social progress or you're by default against it not everybody's always going to be in a position to be actively seeking change all the time especially back then especially back then the tone of the conversation the verbiage used in that conversation and then the fact that jb afterwards says all of the black players get that same speech is very important because you're right. He could have framed it entirely differently when Ben meets with Ernie to say, some lines will not be crossed. It sucks. It's horrible. I get it. But for your own safety, please just keep that in mind. Instead, it's just, I don't have to draw it out for you, right? Ernie, you're a smart guy. There are lines that won't be crossed, right? So 
you're kind of left not really knowing is his personal belief or is it just a school thing, but I lean more towards this is a man that has come some ways, presumably in the 50s, knowing Jim Brown. He's progressed, but he's, but he's not, not a fan of miscegenation either. Exactly. In today's day and age, sadly enough, we see this nonsense recently about race replacement anger in the U.S. and these kind of fringe things, or you would hope would be fringe things that are maybe not so fringe anymore. Leaving aside the fact that race is like a 19th century construct idea anyway, but why one person would be angry about another person in a relationship together. They're terrified that that person will be better, more talented, better looking, smarter, better athlete. That's I think what a lot of this is. They won't ever admit it. They probably even realize that's what it is. But I think they're threatened by somebody who they've seen, especially when it comes to athletics with black people, would be better than them. I can never wrap my head around it, but I couldn't help but think about these things watching this movie. This is a movie now that's 14 years old, probably Mm -hmm. 15 years old if you go back to its production date, and about a story from the 1950s, and it's sadly so applicable in 2022. Maybe even more now. How much better would the world be if race was not a thing that just existed? The old Colbert gag. I don't see color. I don't even know what race I am, right? Like, (laughs) there's a great bit on the Colbert Report, but it's sad how much anger that kind of stuff engenders and still does today. It's mind-boggling. As we record this, it's only been a few days since Josh Donaldson called Tim Anderson Jackie. Oh, that boiled my blood. Like, what's wrong with that guy? I have all kinds of angles on that issue because Tim Anderson did say he's the Jackie Robinson of today, so he brought this on himself. Did he really? He did. I I think his point was the social awareness, not the fact he's a Hall of Fame caliber player. Although Tim Anderson is a really good hitter and good shortstop he's a good player. it's not impossible he could be a hall of fame player one day too but i think he meant the social stuff but it's one of those big brouhaha's that's been maybe blown out of proportion but donaldson has been known to get under people's skin so it's not cool we know it's not cool but we saw it in 42 when he's in cincinnati and you see the kid with his dad oh how many runs is peewee gonna score again a weird thing runs <laughs> anyway he's gonna score three runs then they see jackie robinson boo you and then the dad says it and the kid follows up and then he sees jackie being hugged by Pee Wee Reese on the field, which didn't happen on the field in reality, but still. And then he feels bad. The look on his face, we talked about it in that podcast, is way over the top. But it's still a good scene, especially mm-hmm. between Chadwick Boseman and Lucas Black, I think is yeah. his name. Yeah. yeah. They play that scene really well. I'm not excusing calling somebody any of the slurs. There are so many slurs, not just about black people, but so many slurs. It isn't cool that they're used, but the Josh Donaldson thing, I bring it up because he's the kind of player that says things to get under people's skin. There's a reason why that guy's traveled around baseball an awful lot, as talented as he is. I didn't really know that until the last little while in this incident, that maybe he angers his own teammates and certainly the other teams so much by trying to get another skin. And that's what fans are trying to do. Of course, they should never be throwing bottles at people, nor should they be calling black people these terrible things. But that's part of the reason why anybody does it, because you think you're going to help your team. It's stupid. It's childish. But people have been doing it for so long, hundreds of years, probably at least 800 years. Anybody who says they don't notice race... Colbert was parodying that. If you don't notice race, then you literally are blind. But you don't dwell on race. You get past it. If you see two people, whether it be two guys holding hands, two women kissing, or a mixed-race couple, it doesn't have to be that you immediately are in love with these people. But, okay, (laughs) register the fact that it's a little different than you're used to. I am immediately in love with this person. (laughs) And then you move on. Because it's none of your business. That's what it really should come down to. Mind your own business. Okay, let's talk more about the actual movie again, because we haven't talked about it. Oh, yeah, it we're, we're, we're going to be talking about a movie today. <laughs> Whoopsie. So in that game in West Virginia, apparently it was actually in Syracuse. And they said that in the end credits, because I was reading some of the stuff during the movie. I haven't seen oh. The Express in so long that I didn't want to look up the trivia beforehand, because I didn't know if there'd be any kind of big spoilers, but why find those out when the movie effectively is new to me, even though I have seen it before. 
But the racism was amped up, and it wasn't even in West Virginia in the first place. Neither was the Cotton Bowl that much of a nail-biter, and Ernie didn't sit out the third quarter. He may have been hurt. That's one thing, too, in that game. They're showing the other guys punching his hamstring. <laughs> and there are some that. times they get flags for it. But it's one thing to hit him hard and to hit him after the whistle and usually get flagged for that. I think they do get flagged for that. But when he's down and they're punching his hamstring, <laughs> they're have like, ever seen that before in reality? So was that made up, too? <laughs> that was a specific moment in time in this movie I wanted to ask you about if you didn't bring it up. As a director, why is that the choice? Okay, you. Three of you are going to pile on Ernie. You're going to kneel on him. It's not like it's a subtle thing in the background. It focuses on the player as he's kneeling and lands three punches. And then they do it again the next play. Okay. And the whistle's gone. Everybody's staring at it. And I get that the movie's trying to say, okay, well, the refs are not calling a fair game mm-hmm. because of their own biases. And they're in Dallas, too. Yeah, but so like, Dallas has a home game. Or be, U of T. Be a little bit more subtle about it. That was verging on satirical or comedic the way they portrayed yeah. it. Yeah, just kneeling on him, wailing on the thigh. And there were some other instances beyond just that where some of the Texas players were almost drop-kicking some of the other Syracuse <laughs> players or clotheslining them after the play. Okay, you have to be subtle about it. Otherwise, it just defies belief that however biased the refs might have been, nobody is that openly biased, even in the racist South of America in the late 50s, because I assume there would be recourse for Syracuse to file a grievance about the game or something if the referee was that egregious. Good point. The final score, I think they show this on screen because I wrote it down in my notes, was 22-14. But it wasn't apparently in reality as close as that. The Longhorns couldn't have scored a touchdown and a two-point conversion to tie it because I think the real score was 23-14. They need to keep it just close enough for the tension of the game. To know they could have. So they lied a little bit about that. Fair enough. We always like to call attention to real-life movies being portrayed with facts or figures. Sometimes we've covered movies where they really got it right. I think Glory Road was one they got it really right with the basketball scores. Syracuse was 11-0 and in 59. That year they won the Cotton Bowl. So truly one of the great teams of any year. They were 7-2 and the next year and 8-3 and in 61, the year that Ernie won the Heisman. We don't see 60 or 61 portrayed, I think, at all. No. But he wins the Heisman in a year where they had their worst of those three records. So it makes you wonder, how good was he? He must have been, well, obviously he was great. But how good was he when the team wasn't even as good? But maybe the defense was worse that year or something. Very possible. Fun fact, what I picked up right away is that, of course, number 44 is shown a lot. Jim Brown had it at Syracuse. Ernie Davis wears it at Syracuse. Floyd Little will wear it at Syracuse. And when you look online, the numbers that have been retired at Syracuse, number 44, it says something like many players. Now, maybe those three guys are it, but I'm guessing it might be more than that. It seems like it's a running back tradition to get that number. And you know who wore that number in a movie? Forrest Gump was number 44 with the Alabama. Was it U of Alabama? Ron Forrest. Okay. You think that was... Stop! Was that like a little subtle nod in Forrest Gump? towards Jim Brown, maybe, as the running back great? I don't know. It's possible. I don't remember ever reading about that, but it could be. I have a question for you because this was something that I didn't really understand. And this could be my lack of understanding about how NCAA eligibility works, especially, I guess it was the NCAA. Yeah, NCAA has been around since the early 20th century, right? They didn't call it that, but it must be that, right? It has to be. When Ernie shows up at Syracuse and Quaid tells Clancy Brown, his assistant coach, give him a practice jersey or whatever for the varsity team, not the freshman varsity team, which I guess is a separate thing that I didn't know existed. If you're asking me what this means, I don't know. Okay. Because he's not going to play on the actual team that whole year. So that first year he goes there, he never plays in an actual game. 
the games that Schwartzwalder coaches. That's what confused me. Maybe I missed a cut somewhere or something because he can't play. He's not going to be eligible. I'm like, hold on, freshmen are not eligible for varsity football? What's that about? And then not long after, we see him in a game. I'm like, hold on, what just happened here? A year had passed. A year had passed. I missed that entirely. I was so confused about what had happened there. The first time he's playing, they do put the graphic on the screen what year it is, which would be 1958 or 9. 59, maybe. You're right. I didn't catch the difference in year. They do tend to put graphics on the screen a lot of the time because the movie starts in 1960 at the Cotton Bowl. Then we go back to 1949 when he and Will are kids. Yes. And then we see a couple years later and so on. By the way, as a kid, Ernie stutters when he's confronted by those guys and never again. He's scared. Maybe that's all it is, and that's understandable, but he never stutters. It's not like he has a problem with it the rest of his life. If we talk about pacing and decisions that might make it a little bit more compressed and concise, that was one of them, right? Because I agreed with you. He stutters, and I thought, okay, maybe he's scared. But then later in the movie, his grandfather, he is one of the actors. Rock! We've seen him in other... Rudy. Rudy, notably. He's great in everything, always. But he gets young Ernie to read the Bible passage for Mm -hmm. Grace or something before dinner, and Ernie can't get out. He's stuttering. And then later on... Oh, he does. That's right. Yeah. So it's not just when he's confronted. That's right. It's apparently a problem for him, because later on in the movie, he's reading a Bible again in his room, and his grandfather comes in, and young Ernie basically says, the words are there, but they don't always come out right. That's right. And then we flash forward... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to college age Mr. Articulate. Yeah, and he's so well-spoken. <laughs> I'm like, hold on, what happened here? They specifically had a scene focusing on his stuttering and then never mention it again. Never mention, oh yeah, I took years of speech therapy or something, right? It's just gone. Like, it could okay. be that real guy had that and they want to make sure to jam it in the movie and then scenes got cut because the movie could is be. a little over two hours long, but then maybe ditch it all together. If you're going to set it all up, call it back somehow maybe he's approaching the young women that become sarah and he's tongue-tied yeah he's tongue-tied he's stuttering look here i wouldn't blame him yeah (laughs) or before the big game he's stuttering he's tongue-tied this is just something that comes out when he's nervous and it's how we know he's nervous about these things right so i'm glad Mm -hmm. you mentioned that too because that was another thing that confused the heck out of me i wonder if it's maybe rob brown playing the scenes as the older version of this character but the kid playing the other ones and the director didn't tell him to do it, or Rob Brown didn't want to do it. Not that Rob Brown can tell everyone what to do. He hasn't been acting <laughs> don't you know who I am? at that time. That... <laughs> I'm Rob Brown, damn it. I don't stutter. I've been acting for about eight years. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm basically Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, Meryl Streep. I make my own rules. Well, that is the list of all-time greats, right? Meryl Streep, Al Pacino, Rob Brown. That's what we all think. <laughs> Good actor, but not quite on that list. No, it's true. Well, I mentioned the cast. We got through some of them. Let's get through a few more. So Nelson Ellis, or Nelson Ellis, we just saw him recently. We liked him in Secretariat. He is the, what would it be, the cousin? He's Will Jr. And yeah. Pops, Charles Dutton's character, is Will. Are they cousins? But they're the same age, because he's the one that runs and gets on the train. I wasn't totally sure about that, but then I thought <laughs> later on, I think that he's the one that runs. So this is why the movie is not perfect. <laughs> the very slow-moving train, by the way. <laughs> it was walking speed. The white kids... He's slow. gone. We'll never find him. He's very <laughs> slowly getting away. <laughs> I did like the way that he just booked it. All right, and now we got to go. Let's go, Ernie. And he doesn't come back for Ernie. He's like, well... Ernie's dead. He might have been dead. They might have literally killed him, but But, then he's able to run away. Yeah, it's true. I'm making fun of what was probably a very terrifying situation if you were stuck in in the 40s. But but it is kind of funny the way they portray it. It kind of was. You took them to be cousins. I kind of took them to be brothers. When Ernie's mother comes back a little bit later in the movie... Ingenue Ellis! Yeah, does... She remarries. She remarries, but when she comes back and he's like, Mom, what does Will's character do? I don't even remember now. Does he also come up to her as if, hey, Mom... I I don't think so. So maybe they were cousins then. I think they might be. Especially if he's Will Jr. because Ernie is always calling Pops. 
granddad or grandfather. That's his grandfather. Right. So maybe it's some weird thing with a young person had a kid and somebody who's the same age as somebody else is actually an uncle. Could also be his uncle in a strange way. Who knows? We're really showing our ignorance here of the situation. But that's not like the Davis family is the most famous people of all time. They would have been had Ernie not gotten leukemia at 23. Well, earlier, I guess, but died at 23. Right. And that apparently is not a disease that people tend to get when they're that age, especially in this kind of condition. But dumb luck. You get it when you're a very young kid. Or very old. Or very old. And, and it's also a fitting, well, not fitting, but an unfortunate thing with Chadwick Boseman getting cancer, not leukemia, but cancer, not that many years ago and dying and had it for a long time and dealt with it. He was in his, I think, 40s when he died. And we said it when we covered 42, FU cancer on everyone's behalf, but especially for Ernie Davis, this great athlete, and somebody who seemed like he maybe would have made a difference in the world as well, as Jackie Robinson and other people did. And then Chadwick Boseman, who was also making a difference in the world on top of being a great actor that was so beloved. So I mentioned before that people are in multiple sports movies. Well, Boseman's one of them. He was in 42. He also played a football player, the linebacker that time, in draft day. We see some scenes of him playing the football player in that. Not a lot of football in draft day, but he does have some of the major scenes. Andrew Ellis who does play his mother very briefly, was in King Richard earlier this year. She was, yeah. Oscar nominated. But here's something you probably don't know. Chelsea Ross is now on the list, or he already was, I guess, but really especially now, of the most covered person on this podcast. He's up there on Mount Costner. Chelsea, who is that? He's the one that seems to have hired Schwartzwalder. He's his boss. Maybe he runs the program. The oh, program. yeah. He's like one of those very prolific, oh, that guy actors. He just pops up all over the place. Yeah. Lou Andreas is his name. So, yes, he was in Hoosiers. He's the guy who yeah. Hackman kicks out of the gym and they're really part of the... <laughs> That's right. The, but he's a super fan. Major League, he's the old pitcher. Yep. The last Boy Scout, he's the senator that they want to try to bribe, and then they're going to kill. Really? I didn't remember that. And then Rudy, I forget who he is in that, but he is in it, as is Charles S. Dutton, of course, as Fortune, I think is his name. And then Clancy Brown, you mentioned him a minute ago. He is the nice prison guard on the Hurricane, so we've seen him in our podcast before, and he's the cruel prison guard, the killer, in Shawshank Redemption. And the Kurgan, Ryan. In Highlander. Let's never forget the Kurgan. (laughs) There can be only one. And the other actor I want to mention is Saul Rubinek, who does play Art Modell. We see him very briefly, and I yeah. thought, is he just barely in this movie? But then we see quite a bit of him in the last 20 or so minutes. I don't see any of the sports flicks on his resume, so we probably won't cover him again. But he is a pretty good actor. He's the writer in Unforgiven, who's always talking to Hackman and then Eastwood about how they did what they did. And then Eastwood scares him off at the very end of the film. And he's also got a great role in True Romance. He's the producer. Oh, really? I'll have you killed! <laughs> he wants to make the Coke deal. With Christian Slater. I haven't seen that movie in decades. Mm-hmm. I found his portrayal of Art Modell interesting. I felt similarly about the Modell portrayal as you almost felt about the Dennis Quaid portrayal. Would Modell have been open and like, yeah, I'll for sure draft a young black kid? No it problem. could have been similar to Branch Rickey. Whether or not he actually is socially aware and wants to make a difference for black people who he knows have been oppressed, or whether he didn't really care, but just while well, he says in 42, Harrison Ford does say more than once, yeah. I see green. I think that's probably it. Although in this movie, at least, there's a moment where Modell's talking to Ernie about the fact that he discovered leukemia and he's never going to actually play the season. He's the one to tell him, which is a weird thing, too. Yeah, and that's why I thought, well, maybe the movie wants us to Well, to tell him he's not going to play for my team, I guess that makes sense. You're not going to be suiting up this year. Yeah. And then Ernie realizes later on, even though I'm going to beat this thing, but he doesn't, Yeah, that he's never going to play again, as it turns out. Although he does admit that to Floyd Little, he does say, I'm never going to play again. I took that to be like one of those things where he kind of knows it, but he doesn't want to admit it publicly yet, or at least not to the people around him. But you think the doctor would be the one to tell him, though, that you can't play anymore, not his owner. You're right. I would think it would be the doctor delivering it, but maybe, let me tell him, Doc, because he's got a little bit more empathy than we might expect of somebody in oh, his position in that, yeah. in that time frame. And I know this is true to reality, but I found it funny 
in a sad and ironic way, the owner of the Washington Redskins was like, I ain't drafting a player of color. And then I think he said, <laughs> he didn't say that. Says something along those lines. And then until the Harlem Globetrotters have a white player on their team or something like that. But of course, the implication being, I'm never drafting a player of color. The fact that it was the owner of the Washington Redskins. Which I didn't know until recently, though, how racist that was. I didn't know it was racist at all. Really? Well, until that became a controversy in those years. Whatever it's been. I don't know when that first came up. I feel like it was around the same time as the first Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 or 15. Sounds about right. And then it died down for a while, and Dan (laughs) Schneider didn't care. (laughs) Schneider said, I ain't changed the team name. I don't care what it is. And now it's just this boring name he gave the team, the Washington Football Club or something. Give it a nickname. Come on. You're such an idiot. No, just the Washington Football Club. Okay, there you go. Yeah. By the way, though. The first black quarterback who ever won a Super Bowl played for the Washington Redskins. Really? Doug Williams in 87, I think it was. That's a little ironic, isn't it? Well, maybe fitting. 20 <laughs> some odd years later after this scene is portrayed in this film. So we said already about Fletcher and Levitt as the director and the writer. Another guy we've covered a lot of times before, the composer, Mark Isham. He composed four. Maybe I missed some, but all these movies we've covered now. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. This makes seven. At least. Point Break. Hardball, Miracle, Invincible, Warrior, and 42. He's been around for a long time. He's one of those composers you don't put in the John Williams, Alfred Newman, Jerry Goldsmith pantheon. But he's done some good music, especially for, I think, Rob Reiner. I think he works with him a lot. And then all these sports movies. I don't remember the scores from too many of them, but that's a lot of big movies he's worked on. What did you think about it in this movie? Did it stand out to you at all? I don't remember it at all right now. How many movies have we talked about where you've talked about the composers and things? I'm like, oh, yeah, the music didn't even register to me. But it did with you this time? This time it did. Because I was thinking, that doesn't really evoke the emotion that you're probably going for, which is weird because in citing those other movies, some of them, you're right, I don't remember the score from some of those movies, but some of them I do remember thinking, yeah, this fits, this gets the emotion out of me you're wanting. Didn't really feel like that was the case here. A couple more things I want to talk about. One is the feud he has, Ernie has with Bob Lundy. Because the white players are so generic and they don't really get a Mm. whole lot of screen time, by the way, Evan Jones is the guy in Eight Mile with Omar Benson Miller, Roger Hound Dog Davis. That's the name I see here in the credits now. Yep. But Jeff Stoltz plays Bob Lundy, and he's the one that Ernie fights with in practice a few times and cheap shots him, and Ernie fights back. I think it's in one of the games where Ernie stands up for him, or maybe it's behind the scenes or something like that. But it feels like their quarrel was fixed, but I wasn't really sure if it was Jeff Stoltz or somebody else because there's a lot of actors in this, a lot of generic-looking actors. Did I miss something? Did they solve their problems? And they didn't make it blatantly obvious if they did. The other players don't really seem to care about the black players on the team in the sense of, oh, those guys. It's more a matter of the white guys are talking him up when they're doing the first warm-ups we see, and they seem like they're just accepting them as human beings, but not Bob Lundy. But then whatever was going on there seemed like it just went away. I share your confusion, and... I kind of assumed at some point, and again, this is our ignorance of the real-life Ernie Davis experience coming through here. I didn't know if he was meant to be totemic or representative of all of the bigoted players in Syracuse that Ernie Davis would have had to deal with, and that was just all compressed down into Lundy, and that was meant to represent the struggles that Ernie Davis experienced, or whether there was actually a guy on the team that was just a bit of a putz and was giving Ernie a hard time the whole time. The reason it confused me is kind of for the reasons you talked about. One, I never really picked up on here's where the hatchet was definitely buried. This was the thing that fixed their fear. And it doesn't have to be, but in movies like this, it always is. Rudy, obviously a movie neither one of us really cared for in adulthood anymore. But one of the things that movie does well is it shows you, okay, here's how Er here's how Rudy rather wins over all the players that don't think he belongs, that don't think he's there. He wins their grudging respect by doing this thing. 
And the fact that so many of the players on Syracuse right off the bat are talking up Ernie, they seem to accept him, which in theory is great. Mm-hmm. But then when this one guy doesn't, show us why or show us how well, we know why. I guess, but it's never made clear that it was even like a racist thing. He's I just, don't think he ever uses the word, and he probably would have. This guy, right. he's got this kind of problem with Ernie. This isn't just because, well, it can't be that he's going to be better than me because now that they're competing for a job. So mm. if he has a problem with them and they're on the same team, it's got to be because of the color of his skin. You would think and so. And this guy would probably be saying that word if that was the case. I was just confused by it. Like, it I'm almost like, seems like they shouldn't bother including that then. Felix but then if all the Syracuse players either accept him or don't really dwell on it. I did read, though, that when they don't go to the banquet, right. when they win the Cotton Bowl, that that was real. But actually, no, they went to the awards presentation. They were all allowed to do that, including the three black players. But those guys weren't allowed to stay for dinner and dancing. You can go to the wedding, but you can't go to the reception. <laughs> so I guess in reality, they all went to the presentation. Then they went somewhere else, maybe to a barbecue joint. I like that line, though, by the way. Here, they have good barbecue down here yeah, <laughs> in Dallas, line. obviously, in Texas. But then they did, in reality, go somewhere else so everybody could be part of the celebration. Did it feel like a weird inclusion to you when the team tries to check into the hotel only to be told, whites only hotel, guys? I think Glory Road has the same thing, doesn't it? Probably a typical thing in reality, too. Oh, yeah, probably. Maybe I've just forgotten the specifics of it in Glory Road. Although, in this case, they're allowed to stay. They just have to stay in a crappy room and not use the elevator and not be visible. Yeah, so they're tucked away in what looks like a basement storage closet or something with mattresses on the floor. To me, that felt like almost contra the kind of vibe the movie was going for. As this team grows much more successful and we see the coach growing a little bit individually. Because of this one guy who's black, especially. Yeah. He's not just on the team. He's a great player on the team. Exactly. It felt like that was the moment where the team would have been like, okay, well, if Ernie and BJ, DJ? JB. JB, that's it. If they're stuck down here, then we're staying with them down here. That would have been the moment to show the team unity, especially going to this big game against Texas. Mm Maybe the movie felt like that undercuts the later moment with the awards presentation. I don't know. Our star guy is just going to hunker in the basement while all the white folks stay in the nice hotel. Mm-hmm. Maybe even sneak them into your room when no one's looking. That so would have been a good one, yeah. more comfortably, but that never is brought up. And you know what? That would have been a good edit, too, because that could be the moment when Lundy shows you burying the hatchet. Come up to my room. Mm-hmm. I'll get you up there, guys, right? And then that resolves that whole thing. Right. There you go. I like it. I've mentioned Glory Road a few times in this podcast. Well, the movie Glory... Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman. There's a scene maybe 25, 30, 40 minutes of that movie where they're not being paid properly because of the black regiment. And Broderick says, if you won't accept the paycheck they're giving you, which is a pittance, then none of us will, including the white guys. So they all tear up their paycheck. Even the white colonel, they're not going to take the pay either. So that's a show of solidarity. And that's when those guys really start to coalesce in that movie more than they already had. And you're right. We maybe could have had a scene like that in this film. And if it wasn't true, well, the movie's not entirely being truthful about a lot of other things either. Exactly. I always find it interesting when we do these movies that are trying to stay at least somewhat true to reality, but not really, where they decide to blur the lines of reality and where they seem to stick really hard to it, even if that's not great narratively. And I think that's exactly what you talked about. To your point about glory, one of the things this movie does have going for it is the fact that, of course, NCAA players, despite being huge revenue generators for their universities, are not paid up to and including 2022. So no need to worry about show of solidarity by tearing up your paychecks, guys, because we ain't going to pay you anyway as we roll these hundreds of millions of dollars to the bank for the university. You pointed out before in other podcasts that that was true before black players were even allowed to play. Yeah. But maybe if it was just white players now, 
they would have been paid a long time ago. But because so many players in basketball and football programs, programs, programs. in college, I've got to say it that way, the Bill Clinton thing, because so many of the people in those sports are not white, that may be one reason why it hasn't changed even now. Even just, like we've said before, don't punish them for taking a watch or a dinner or their mom gets a car or a mortgage payment. Come on. Some reasonableness here. That's all we can really ask for. I think it's exactly what you just said about Branch Rickey. All these university heads or the NCAA itself, all they see is green, right? And mm-hmm. as soon as you have to start paying your players football, basketball, baseball, or otherwise. They lose a little bit of that green. Probably a lot of it, frankly. Well, they still make so much, though. Still these make... days, I'm talking. Maybe not so much back in the late 50s, early 60s, even at Syracuse. That's right. By the way, look online. I looked up Syracuse Orangemen, and of course, now it comes up Syracuse Orange, because yeah. they don't want to make it men and women, so it's just orange in general for the programs, the programs for football, <laughs> basketball, and what have you. Depiction of the sport, it's well done, I think. In fact, it's pretty great. Brown's football double is convincing. I'm sure he does some of it, but obviously, mm-hmm. you got to have a football player for some of that other stuff, I'm thinking, anyway. It's not completely period accurate. For one, all players are generally bigger now, I think, no matter what you play. It's probably true. But I think it's convincing football. It was fine. The one thing I did notice, and maybe this is just because we've watched at this point so many football movies, including... As many as baseball movies, by the way. I think it's 16 apiece. And some of the ones that still stick out to me as far as portrayal of the sport go are things like Friday Night Lights and Any Given Sunday. Almost for their, I want to say, honest, but just the brutality of the sport, right? And the speed and force of it. And I felt like that was one element that was maybe a little bit missing from the portrayal here because we get a lot of football, right? So at a certain point, I was like, I'm not feeling the impactful nature. In fairness, late 50s. True. But what we did find out when we were doing Leatherheads is the sport, if anything, was more lethal years ago. In Leatherheads case, we're talking sort of the 1910s, 1920s, of course. But even in the 50s, the safety equipment was not there. You're right, of course, that players got bigger, 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 and stronger, faster as time passed from the 50s. But nonetheless, in this period of time, they're hitting each other, hitting each other hard. And we get some sequences of that, especially in practice, especially when we saw Ernie get his hamstring blown out in practice. But in the games themselves, and I think this is probably just because of the difficulty of trying to film what appears to be an accurate representation of the game and the way you need it to happen and all that kind of stuff, so many slow-mo shots of the hits happening, you don't get that bang, bang, fast motion that we saw in those other movies where you're just like, ooh, what was the character? Oh, Friday Night Lights had his knee just destroyed with one of those hits where it's just low body hit. Oh, booby. That was the kind of moment. His career's you, over. Yeah, and I felt like that element of it was missing from the betrayal, but otherwise, I agree with you. It was unimpeachable as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. Yeah, it's a pretty solid sports movie despite some of the other problems. Well, I think your score is going to be lower than mine. I'd give it at least a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10. I was emotionally affected by the ending. How could you not be? I think you really have to be. Although I have to admit, it's been a day or two since I saw it, and I don't remember the way I felt even now. <laughs> but Rob Brown is a very sympathetic and good actor, so he that is. really helped the fact that he's playing this guy who you have to side with. He dies at 23 of leukemia and never had a chance to do the one thing he wanted to do so badly. I gave it two and a half stars when I saw it, probably sometime in 2009 on DVD, I'm guessing, something like that. But That's out of four, right? You've... Yeah, so... If you want to see The Express, definitely see it. If you don't, then don't bother. But the actors are very good. There's a lot of good things in it. You've already expressed why you didn't like it that much, but what's your score? It's one of those movies where there's a lot of stuff in it that's fine. You respect it as well, I guess, because I res- of what's going on yeah, and the real person. I, I respect the real story. I respect the attempt to make the movie. You can see the good there and all the performances in the movie were good. The portrayal of the sport's good. But when we talk about it, it's not like there's a lot in it where, like, this was spectacularly done. I didn't really feel that. Oh, way. nothing was spectacularly done. That's exactly. True. I tend to focus on here's the things that I wish were better. 
So it kind of sounds like I'm dumping on it a little mm. bit more than I intend to. I came into it thinking, yeah, this is about a six. It's a movie that is family friendly. If you're looking for like a movie to watch about an inspiring young man in the 50s and all that, cool. This is a good choice for you, but it's not terribly exciting. It feels like it drags a lot. And ultimately, what I was most disappointed by is I never felt like I got a real good handle on who Ernie Davis really was. Yeah, okay. We see a lot of him on the field, of course. We know about his passion for football, and we get a sense of maybe where that came from early on in the movie. But so many elements of his personality are just not explored or touched on and then never revisited. We talked about the stuttering thing, but I would also point towards the social activism angle of it. Because his cousin brings him to an NAACP meeting. The cousin's going on about all these things they're going to do. And Ernie says, listen, I can't risk my career, my scholarship. But we do know that Ernie Davis was still a very socially aware guy. And he brought that with him to Syracuse and onto the football field. And there's more to him about that. We see it later in the movie, kind of expressed a little bit when he's talking to his coach. I wish there was just more exploration about the man. That's fair. I think the idea would be, and Jim Brown might have felt this way too about his own career, is that if you really succeed in sports, then that's how you can help young kids to be inspired. And you could say that about even athletes now. Maybe that's what Tim Anderson is implying, playing for the White Sox here in 2022. Or I think he said that about Jackie Robinson maybe two, three years ago. Maybe that's what he means, is that I can be a leader in that kind of way. Although if he is, I haven't really heard that much about him being some kind of social justice, social leader. Who knew that would come up? And by the time this gets posted, that hopefully will have died down. Because I read before we started recording that Donaldson did apologize to the Jackie Robinson family. And he already tried to clear it up with Anderson. But they have a feud beyond that. There's a beef there. That's the Lundy beef, in a way, with Ernie Davis that just got out of hand because of what happened a couple days ago. You already talked about how Josh Donaldson is an abrasive guy to everybody around him. That's why he just bounces around in the latter stages of his career. But Tim Anderson's that kind of guy, too. He's no angel. This has nothing to do with the interaction between Donaldson and Anderson at all. But in general, he's not as an angel. General, he, Davis is portrayed in this as an angel. Right. So if you're going to have two abrasive personalities, then you can understand how that would blow up and how something that shouldn't have happened did happen. But you're right. In this, Davis is an angel. Maybe he was. Maybe he was just the nicest man alive. But that is something in biopics or movies based on real people that I wish the people were just more three-dimensional. A little more sand. A little more sand, a little more grit, because he's just nice to the nth degree throughout. So a solid movie. Not a great one, but that is The Express. A Blu-ray that I got is a two-pack with Friday Night Lights, and I'd never watched it. And I watched (laughs) this on Netflix, as I'm sure you did, too. So I saw it in a way, but not on my Blu-ray. Okay, Adam Sandler's basketball comedy Hustle will be on Netflix on June 8th. So in two weeks, which is June 23rd, you'll hear us talk about yet another Sandler sporter. This is our third of his, Happy Gilmore and The Waterboy were the previous two. Plus, we still have his remake of The Longest Yard we can get to at some point. I think that's on Netflix also. It is, yeah. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. The email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And all of our 105, is it, episodes? 105 it is, are online and available to be downloaded anytime. You rest easy, Ernie D. You could have been and should have been one of the greats.